Will you join me in reading our text for this morning from Colossians? The Colossians Creed is also our text. It's up on the screen as well. We believe he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the living word of God for us today. Thank you, Caleb. Sometime last year, or maybe it might be a little over a year ago, uh, Rob Sweet invited uh, the elders at an elder meeting to um, talk about a movie that they remember, and, and a favorite movie, a movie that stuck with you, that did something in you. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a table of, at the time, um, I guess 11, you know, 11 men. Uh, I remember, uh, I recall Braveheart was mentioned. <laughs> Think about the movies. <laughs> Braveheart was mentioned. Yes, Apollo 13 was mentioned. Uh, Saving Private Ryan. Um, it's a confidential meeting, and so I'm not, I can't give the name of the person who mentioned Talladega Nights, but uh, <laughs> I, they described it as the baby Jesus prayer, just moved them, you know, kept with them. Well, the movie that came to my mind was one that, that is, it's just kind of a nondescript movie. It wasn't a big blockbuster at all, but this movie just stayed with me. Uh, I saw this movie in 1993. Lisa and I were living in Dallas. Uh, we were going to seminary at the time. And we went to see the movie, Summersby. Uh, Summersby is a movie that stars uh, Richard Gere. He is Jack Summersby. And then uh, the, the, a widow is played by uh, Jodie Foster. It's La uh, Lauren or Laurel. And Laurel's a, a Civil War widow Okay, and she's trying to keep the farm together and there's a son because she believes that Jack, her husband, was killed. Okay? So this is kind of the, the, the framework for the movie. It's set in Vine Hill, Tennessee, of all places, just after the war. And lo and behold, out of nowhere one day, Jack Summersby shows up. I mean, he's, he's supposed to be dead, but he shows up. And what you get right away in the movie is, Laurel has some suspicious feelings about Jack because he's the spitting image of her husband, Jack. <clears throat> but there are things about him that are just off. And probably one of the biggest is her husband, Jack, was cruel and abusive. And this Jack is kind and generous. They, they, they finally, she finally you know, accepts him. They fall in love. They have a, a, a daughter, Rachel. Uh, the story continues, and Jack um, invites the whole community, really like a leader in the community, he invites the whole community on this massive risk because they're de the economy's devastated. So his idea is rather than farm the way they had been farming, 
They wanna take a massive risk and begin to raise a new crop, tobacco. And uh, the tobacco seed itself is way expensive. And it requires just about every penny from the whole community, you know, they give him to go get the tobacco seed. Now, the other thing that Jack does, though, is he deeds over, he signs deeds, excuse me, with former slaves that they now own a piece of his family farm that's been his family for generations. They own it, he signs the deeds, and it's theirs because they'll raise tobacco on it. You can imagine this plan, it gets off to a shaky start because of the deep embedded racism uh, at the time. And so the time comes for the tobacco crop to be harvested. And here's where we begin to learn some things. Right as it's about to be harvested, a federal marshal shows up in Vine Hill to arrest Jack Summersby because Jack Summersby murdered a man. And so this marshal's here to arrest him, take him to trial, and hang him. Now, the story unfolds, spoiler alert, it's an old movie, so either you've seen it or you haven't, you know, so it doesn't matter. But so the movie unfolds with uh, th this question uh, really sits at the center of the movie. And this is why it moved me. You can kind of picture me, you know, I'm at seminary, Lisa and I, we're studying things, you know, and... So really the, the story is now this, uh, Jack Summersby, and, and what we find out here too, and this is the spoiler part, is that we come to learn that this, this Jack Summersby who's come back to Laurel is not the real Jack Summersby. It's not her husband. Uh, this Jack Summersby had spent time in a jail cell with the real Jack Summersby and they were like, we are twins. And he learned, he learned his whole life in Vine Hill. And so when the real Jack Summersby was killed, this man, Horace Townsend, said, I'm gonna be Jack Summersby. And so that's how the movie is unfolded. He goes and now though, Jack Summersby is gonna be, gonna be tried and hung for murder. So will this Jack Summersby reveal his true identity and be spared death. Think about it, okay? Because he can just say, look, I'm, I'm not the real Jack Summersby, so no, I didn't kill the man and I can live. Or will this Jack Summersby maintain that he's Jack Summersby and die an innocent man? the tension hangs on this question. If he reveals his identity that he's not the true Jack Summersby, every deed that those former slaves have signed, that he signed, that land that is now theirs and the tobacco crop that's on that land that's worth you know, so much to them is invalid. It all, it all goes away if he reveals he's not Jack Summersby. The whole movie revolves around this theme, identity. What's the real identity? And people's lives are hanging in the balance. And you feel, I felt this in the movie, like, oh my gosh, is he gonna, 
Is an innocent man gonna die because he loves these people or is he gonna go, no, 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 and save his own skin? Doesn't that sound familiar? Where we come to today in our study of Colossians, it's six verses. We've been reciting it from the very beginning. And it's the six verses in the Bible that most lucidly, comprehensively, and preeminently define the identity of Jesus. Who is he? What has he done? It's all about the identity of Christ. And you can imagine Paul, as he unpacks and, and seeks to communicate under the inspiration of the Spirit, the identity of Jesus, it's like words fail him in a sense. And so these six verses, what we now know is that it's actually a hymn. Isn't it true for us? Like you, you, you wanna communicate to something to someone or you wanna communicate an idea and the words are okay, but you know, if, if you really wanna touch the heart, what, it, what, what would you do? You'd make it into a song or a poem. And y'all, that's exactly what we have in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It is the hymn, a hymn of the early church. I'm not saying that they, they sang it. We don't know that for sure, but they certainly recited it even as we have been doing. And I want to let you know, we've been reciting this creed and will continue to because we're encouraging all of us to memorize it. What better word to have in our heart than this most exalted portion of scripture that defines the person and work of Jesus. So I wanna encourage you in that. We'll do that in part because we want to memorize it. Well, last week, by way of context, before we dive in, uh, Rob covered verses 13 and 14, okay? So this is our context. We're gonna pick up 15 on. Um, in that passage, uh, Paul explains that those who put their faith in Jesus, okay, if you put your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you are a part of the greatest deliverance in the history of the world and all eternity. What do I mean by that? Well, Rob explained it. It's Exodus language. And so 13 and 14, Paul is saying that Jesus is the greater Moses, Moses was a great man and God used Moses to deliver the nation of Israel from bondage to freedom uh, from, from bondage in Egypt. You get that? That was a great deliverance. But what Paul is saying is the greater Moses, Jesus, delivers you not from bondage to a country, but from bondage to sin, to the kingdom of his beloved son, nothing less than this. The greater Jesus, of which Moses was pointing to, delivers us from death to life. Everybody, everybody with me on that? So that's the redemption that's described in verses 13 and 14. And then it's interesting that he goes from that immediately in to this hymn of exaltation of the identity of Jesus. And it's worth asking, why? Why that transition and connection? I wanna give you at least two reasons, okay? First one would, would be this, because our deliverance from the domain of darkness to life, or our deliverance from death to life, 
depends on the identity of the redeemer. If Jesus is not who he says he is, then that redemption and deliverance is null and void. Everybody with me on that? So it's like our redemption is only as good as our redeemer. And here's a second reason, because there were teachers, we're gonna find this out in Colossae, there were teachers um, who, who were telling these young Christians, this young church in Colossae, uh, that they needed more than Jesus. Whoa, whoa, they're, t- they're telling, you know, Jesus is good, but you need more than Jesus. I'm gonna tell you this, and we say it often here. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. This, that, that, that's heresy, that's not the gospel, that's not what the Bible teaches. There is no Jesus plus, it's all Jesus. Does that make sense? So that's why you know, he goes from this redemption to say, now, you do understand that this one who redeemed us, you, do you understand who he is? Because you, you can trust that your redemption is good. And these six verses, oh my goodness, only, it seems, I, only under the inspiration of the Spirit, it's like a, only a song will do to communicate them. I wanna read them again. If you've got your little booklets, and more coming, by the way, if you've lost yours. Well, if you lost yours, remember, you gotta buy yours. But if you've not taken one, you know, you can get one or get one for your family, friend, whatever it may be. Look there at Colossians chapter one, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 15 and 16. I'm gonna just read it again with us. It says, he is the, and by the way, when, you, when I read it, remember Rob said put a box around every reference to Jesus? So let's do that. You'll see it on the screen as well. Note it says, he is, so there's he, gotta put a box around he, because that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, I I didn't put a box around mine in my notes, but you could put a box around that because it's referring to Jesus. He's the firstborn, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, there's another one, him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him. There's another box. And for him, there's another box. You remember we do this because 65 times Christ is referenced in the book of Colossians. So only 95 verses. The book's about Jesus. Now, we're gonna look at the the text this morning, uh, not as a whole, because it's a song, it's a poem, it's a lyric, so to speak, and, and you can't, we can't get it by taking the whole thing per se. And so Rob and I agreed that we would slow down and y'all were just gonna take two verses, two verses at a time. So this hymn will be unpacked over the next three weeks, two verses at a time. We just read verses 15 and 16. And in verse 15, we get the framework for what we wanna talk about this morning because it says, he is the image of the invisible God. So the first heading we're gonna look at is is Jesus's identity, that's the whole theme, in relation to God. So in relation to God, who's Jesus? That's the first heading we'll look at. And then you'll notice it says, and he's the firstborn of all creation. So the second heading is gonna be, you know, what's Jesus's identity in relation to creation? Everybody with you on that? So it's in relation to God, in relation to creation, who's Jesus? Start with the first one. He is the image of the invisible God. You all know that God is spirit. Uh, You can't see God, he's he's spirit. What Paul 
says is that the invisibility of spirit, the invisibility of God is made visible by the God-man, Jesus Christ. He does not mean Jesus's physical body. He does not mean Jesus. You know the pictures you see around? That's Jesus, that's, Jesus, that's God, the one with the beard, brown hair, brown eyes, about five, no, that's not it at all. He's saying Jesus is the image of the invisible God in terms of God's character, his nature, his attributes, his actions. That he's, he's the image of God in this way. Now, image is the Greek word ikon, which we get icon from. And you all know what, a, what an icon is. An icon's an image. Uh, there's an icon of uh, George Washington on a quarter. You know, it's, it's, it's all, it, you go, well, that's an image of George Washington. That's an icon. The Greek thought in this passage, and I'll show you this by way of the context as well, is that Jesus as the image, the icon of God, is not just saying that he, this is what God looks like, an image. It goes further, meaning Jesus is a living revelation of all that God is. Let me say it another way. Jesus is the actual presence and nature of God. Jesus, you see, shares in the essence of Godness. It's the doctrine of the, what we call the deity of Jesus that we believe the Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God. The doctrine of the Trinity now, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. I want you to hear it from Jesus' own mouth and then from Hebrews. You'll look at some, the side screens. Jesus says this in John 10, 30, you'll note. I and the Father are one. Now, do you, do, you see, do you feel in that? It's not that Jesus says, you know, I look like God. No, no, no. I and the Father are one. That's where we say one in essence. How about John 14, 19? Jesus said to him, I have been with you for so long and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 10, 33. This is New Living Translation, but it's when the, when the uh, religious leaders, they want to kill Jesus. Note what they say. They replied, we're stoning. He said, why do you want to kill me? He says, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. Don't let anyone tell you Jesus never said he was God. He claimed to be God. Not, not even like a likeness. No, he said, I am God. And then Hebrews 1.3, notice what the writer says. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint, icon, but it goes further, of his nature, not just image. Jesus is so under the heading, we'll say here that Paul just, he just cuts to the quick. Under the heading, okay, who is Jesus? In relation to God, Jesus is God. Ready with me on that? Then he goes over here and says, now let's talk about Jesus in relation to creation. And that's the second part of verse 15. He says, he is the firstborn of all 
creation. Got to spend a little time here. The firstborn of all creation. Firstborn here does not mean uh, first in terms of uh, birth order. You know, you got four kids. We have three. Darden's the firstborn. It's not, that's not what firstborn means here. And, and this is very important as I'll, as I'll say why in a moment. But it, it doesn't mean that. And you go, well, what biblical grounds do you have to say it doesn't mean that? Well, on these, I, I want you to consider the whole of Scripture. Let's take the Scripture as a whole. Exodus 4, 22, God calls the nation of Israel his firstborn. You are my firstborn. Now, we know that God is not saying you're the first nation. They're not the first nation on the planet Earth, no. But God is saying you are my firstborn, i.e., you are above all the other nations, you are, you are favored in a different way than all the other nations. That's what he's communicating. In Psalm 89, 27, the psalmist says this, it's God speaking, and, and I will make him, and he's speaking of the Messiah, the one who's gonna come to save us from our sin. I will make him the firstborn. Next statement defines firstborn. The highest of the kings of the earth. Now, he's speaking of Jesus, who comes from the line of David. Jesus is King Jesus, but Jesus wasn't the first king, right, of the line of David. But what he makes clear here is he is gonna make the Messiah the highest king. Is everybody with me? So when you say firstborn in this passage, uh, we we wanna note that it's, it's highest in rank. The whole of scripture, we can look at other passages of scripture that say that, and you say, well, Lloyd, that's, How do you know that says that here in Colossians? Well, remember this, studying our Bibles, context is king, meaning that when you're trying to interpret a Bible passage, the context, especially immediate and just beyond it, the context is the final arbiter. Like you're not sure what it means here. Well, what is the context by which that that word is being used in? And when you look at the context of the hymn, because again, you gotta take this as a hymn, as a song, The context is not about Jesus was born before someone in a line of births. The context is Jesus is above all. That's the context of the hymn. Jesus is supreme, preeminent above everything. And therefore, we we can understand that firstborn is not, not about priority in time or quantity. It is is about priority of rank and honor and authority. Why am I camping on this? Because even today there are those who, you know, who, who don't believe this. And in particular, let me say Jehovah's Witnesses, if you've ever spoken with one or you, you have a friend, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses take this, this passage and they read it and they say, well, it says he's the firstborn, which means Jesus is a created being. And then Jesus created everything else. That's not what the passage says. That's not what the whole of scripture says. That's quite frankly, heretical. Uh, and it's, but it's not a new argument. Arius in the fourth century presented that and, 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 and fought for that. And it was squashed, but you can't squash it forever, can you? You can't make Jesus less than who the Bible says he is. So with that, got it? So, so uh, in relation to creation, he's the firstborn of all creation. He's above all creation. Paul, what do you mean he's above all creation? Well, that's where he takes us next. Notice in verse 16. 
before by him all things were created. What do you mean all things? In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, here's where Paul uses uh, three Greek prepositions. And those three Greek prepositions enable us to say, okay, this is, this is what he means by Jesus created all things. If you look in your, in your, um, in your books, go ahead and pull, pull those out and look at your book. You'll notice that it starts with for by him. And what I want you to do is I want you to take each of those prepositions and I want you to put a little arrow above it. You see that? Because a preposition is a connector. So put a little arrow above by because it starts off with by him. And then when you get to the back of 16, you notice it says through him. So by him, and then it says through him. And then it ends with, um, I know I've got to put the uh, locks off of this, but it drives me crazy just so you know <laughs> to do that because then I got to lock it back up and then I got to roll it off of here afterwards. So that's why I'm struggling fighting with this thing. Um, but uh, the three prepositions in the Greek, by, for, through. Everybody with me? By is the Greek N. For is the Greek Dea. And through is the Greek Is. Okay, so it's it, it, very intentional on his part to use four different prepositions. I don't wanna confuse you, but, but this is where you know, I go, gosh, this might confuse us a little bit. I, I really believe in the best scholarship, can I say this, takes this, the N, okay? The, it, can, it, it truly is fine to say for by him, you, you can do it that way, but the best scholarship takes that N to be in. In him. And in him means, so in the, it's a, it's a preposition of locality. It's, it's in the sphere of Christ, in, in who Christ is. Um, maybe better said, this is a commentary in New American. Richard Melick says it like this. It should be understood, this, this first preposition as in, it should be understood as in, in his mind or in his sphere of influence in his responsibility. Practically, it means that Jesus conceived of creation and its complexities. Jesus conceived of creation and all its complexities and all it is, it's, it's, it was Jesus, you see, within him that all that comes into being. Then he goes on if you say, well, okay, you know, if he, if he, for, for by him all things were created. What, what's, what's the all, Paul? And it's like he can't, he can't get detailed enough. And, and he goes on, and you'll, you'll see it in your text. He says, all things, and he says, in heaven 
or on earth. And it's like, he's got a little further to go. And he says, visible or invisible. And you say, Lord, you, why did you draw it, write it like that on, on, on the board? It's up there on the screen. It's because in the, in the Greek, what, what they would see is, is that what Paul is saying is in heaven, it's invisible. And on earth, which is visible. Do you feel the comprehensive nature of what Paul's saying? That's the point he's getting. By the way, go through it all, 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 all seven times the comprehensive nature, and he gets very specific. Uh, and, and when he says visible on earth, you know, take that, we get that, okay? I, I think we all understand, and what it's saying is that, that it's in Christ that everything is. What do you mean everything? Everything you can see on the planet. Every rock, every pebble, every mountain, every sea, every microscopic, every microscopic thing, every big thing, uh, every person, every organic, inorganic, do you see what I'm saying? The whole earth, everything within our senses was conceived in Christ. It's he who made it, we'll see in a moment. But it's the in heaven, invisible, that, that might take a little bit more nuance for us. Because I want you to know he's not talking about, you know, in our future heavenly abode, like where we'll be with God. That's not what he's saying and, and speaking of here. Um, it's not the place we go when we die per se. He is referring to, okay? And, and y'all, this is the part, you know, of our Bible. It's so fascinating, but if we pay attention, we, we can't deny nor miss it, and, 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 but we wanna appreciate it. He is referring to the heavenly realm, the unseen invisible reality of another dimension of existence. And you know, for our contemporary culture, you go, well, that sounds like the matrix. I go, yeah, it does. I wonder why the matrix ever came about. Because there is an invisible dimension and reality. Well, that sounds like some Marvel comic book movies right now going all these crazy creatures. Yeah, that sounds like the Game of Thrones. You know why? Because I'm not saying those are real. What I'm saying is that in principle, there is a reality that is beyond what's physical. That's the, you know, you can't even read your Bibles, can you, without getting to that. I mean, you read your Bibles and, and we immediately are confronted with, there's more to creation than the physical world. Um, by the way, and I've, Rob and I are encouraging you to do this, you know, I, there's one of the best resources available to you, to all of us uh, on the internet. It's called the Bible Project. And why do I say that? Because what I'm gonna draw up here, I, I got as I looked at them as they explained spiritual beings, but the Bible Project, it's free. These guys are so sound biblically. And we've shown you videos before where they outline books of the Bible. You got a question about it. It's outstanding, but I'm, I'm saying, you know, I go to look at it to teach you. <laughs> you know, you can look at it and some of those resources yourselves. But what's clear is, when we read our Bibles, that we do know that the Bible writers recognize this existence of this place called 
heaven. And this, this, this heaven reality is, it's full of these beings. I, I, you know, I'm just drawing people shapes up here, but boy, there's some things that are shaped like an, an animal and it's these spiritual beings. <laughs> what did I draw there? You can't, looks like a jig. It's these puzzle pieces. Um, but you know, it's these spiritual beings in this heavenly realm and it's real. And of course we know that the Bible also says there is earth. This is what we're living on right now. And yes, they overlap. How about that? I want you to notice where Paul goes when he speaks of, you know, he gets to this visible, invisible, and then where he goes with this invisible. Notice what he says, verse 16. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Hmm. Is he talking about thrones, dominions, or rulers of authorities as in down here, presidents, dictators, no, he's talking about thrones, rulers, authorities, dominions, spiritual in the heavenly unseen realm. How many of you go back and read this present darkness? Remember the Peretti book? I mean, it's, he, he, he just tells a novel about this and, and it's true that there is a spiritual reality, the heavenlies, in which beings exist, you all, that we can't see. Powerful enough to be called, don't, don't try, you know, we don't need to try and figure out which is higher, which is lower, what's the, there is some measure of hierarchy and geography here, no question, but the point is that they're, they're powerful, why else would he go to, the, why else would he say thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities? There is more to creation than you and I can see. Paul, Paul gets very clear on this. And I believe that this is Colossians and uh, Ephesians and Colossians are like sister letters, so much overlap. Now I want you to listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter six. Put on the whole armor of God that you, may not, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You gotta stop right there and go, the devil, that, that's a spiritual being. Yes, indeed. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, listen to this, rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Demons, angels, divine beings. In the Bible, you, they get kind of different names or you know, cherubim, seraphim, the, you know, these creatures. Y'all, these are not, you know, those aren't mythological. Those are real. Uh, the, the, the evil, as he's describing it here, those evil beings are always seeking, always seeking your destruction, always seeking to diminish and subvert your and my faith 
in the gospel, in the trustworthiness of who Jesus is. It's a never ending battle that goes on, unseeable, but the effects are profound. Is a, is, a, is, is, a, is a fallen angel, is a demon behind every bad thing that happens in your life? No, no, there's fallenness. That, that there's not a demon behind that. But are the evil hosts of heaven out to subvert your faith in Christ? Yes, and they always will be. Now, I want to clarify this. Notice it doesn't say, and Jesus created evil spiritual beings. No, it doesn't say that because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that these spiritual beings, they were, they were once glorious, okay? And, and many still are. But some rebelled against God, okay? And they were cast out of the heavens, right? And now you have fallen angels and spiritual beings on this planet. But not all fell. So, so stick with me on that. Does that make sense? So it's not like Jesus created them evil. No, 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 he did not. The point Paul is making you all is that there is a spiritual reality and a physical reality, okay? There are spirit beings that are beyond powerful there's the world and all that's in it. Guess who's above both? Who? That's the point. So that's why we don't fear because Jesus, he, he created it all. He's over it all. He's above all. He's the center of it all. Okay, back to the three prepositions. We say, in him, all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Look again at the end of verse 16. He's, he's like, I gotta say it again, Paul says. All things were created through him. Through him. This is in and this is well, I got these out of order. The ice is through. No, the, I got this. I really do have this out of order. How do I erase this, Joe? I can't erase it. You guys stick with me on this. The dia, the dia, okay, is through. Are you with me? Y'all forgive me for that. That's, you got, if, I, if I erase it with my hand, it messes everything up. So, so this should be, the dia is through. The four is E-I-S. Boy, I'm gonna throw this pin out at y'all. Just be, I, I, I love writing on the board, but the electronics are, are messing with me. Is everybody with me on that though? So the, so the dia is through him. That means he's the means of creation. Wait, I thought God created the heavens and the earth. Who is Jesus in relation to God? Tell me, he's God. Now, the Trinity is involved in creation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But isn't it interesting that in this passage and really throughout Scripture, God the Father points everything to God the Son. It's, it's no exaggeration for me to say to you, it's all about Jesus. 
This helps us make sense, for example, of John 1.12. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I mean, I think he'd get an F for his grammar, you know, because it's kind of like, he just kind of, he's going, you know, everything was made by God, nothing that's made, he didn't have a hand in because everything that he, everything you see he made because he made everything and nothing exists that he didn't make. (laughs) Okay, we got it. Through him, all things are made. In him, all things were created. Through him, all things are made. And then this last one, I hope I haven't confused you too much, but this is the E-I-S, the the ice, and that is for him, for him, all things were made. This is a preposition of purpose. This is is the, well, then why were all things made? Um, Where is everything headed? What's it all about? The ultimate goal and aim of everything in the universe is Jesus. Why are you on the planet? Jesus. Why is there something rather than nothing? Jesus. Well, when it all ends and there's a new heaven and a new earth, what's that gonna be about? Jesus. Listen to how John Piper describes this. I, I like the way he wrote it. And all things were created for him. All things that came into being exist for Christ. That is, it exists to display the greatness of Christ. Nothing, nothing in the universe exists for its own sake. Everything from the bottom of the oceans to the top of the mountains, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, from the most boring school subject to the most fascinating science, from the ugliest cockroach to the most beautiful human, from the greatest saint to the most wicked genocidal dictator, everything that exists, exists to make the greatness of Christ more fully known. It's all about Jesus. His identity. Which is why that movie Summersby struck me. Everything in that movie that could be good depended on the identity of that man. I'm gonna invite the band to come out and the worship team because we'll respond appropriately in, a song, in songs of worship. But I want you to consider something. We're not gonna leave here without the choice that we make for we don't study this in order to just know about Jesus but in order to follow him more fully. And here's what that means. I want you to answer three questions. There's a fourth. The first three are yes or no. They're up on the screen. Pretty simple. I mean, it's yes or no. Based on this text, you answer yes or no. And then that fourth question, would you reflect on that for a moment? As we lift our voices to God in a moment, let us go there having trusted Christ with what he would have us choose because of who Jesus is.